Hello and welcome back to season two of Mud Between Your Toes, Conversations with Pete Wood. In the first 50 episodes, I gave you an interfusion of narrations directly from my book and the occasional conversations with Pete Wood. I hope you enjoyed them despite my amateur dramatics voiceover. In this new series, I aim to bring you new conversations from fascinating people around the world, people who have a connection with Zimbabwe, albeit at times rather tenuous. I hope you find them informative, interesting, and above all, entertaining. Hello, my guest today lives here in Hong Kong. He and I couldn't possibly have come from a more different background. Innocent Mutanga was the first refugee to graduate from a university in Hong Kong, gaining a degree in anthropology from the prestigious Chinese University of Hong Kong. And for the past year, he's worked as an analyst at an investment bank. So Innocent Mutanga, welcome to Conversations with Pete Wood. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm excited for this conversation and uh, it's something that I've, you know, I've thought about, I'm looking forward to, you know, uh, I hope, uh, you know, at the end of these few minutes, we can be able to, you know, to inspire each other, get to know more about each other and, you know, people can get to know me, more about me as well. I hope so. I think I need a bit of inspiration at the moment. Yeah. You know, as I mentioned, you and I come from polar opposite backgrounds, which we will get back to in a minute because it's important. But first, I want to discuss the refugee situation here in Hong Kong. As I understand it, Hong Kong isn't a signatory to the 1951 convention relating to the status of refugees and actually has no legal framework governing the granting of asylum. So can you tell us how you ended up as a refugee here in Hong Kong? Uh, well, I mean, I was, you know, I was back in Zimbabwe and, uh, you know, things were, you know, politically and economically, things weren't really quite uh, in a positive way. And, uh, you know, I was one of the few people, many people actually, who were involved in trying to make the country uh, a better place in the way we believe to be. Uh, and that didn't sit well with the government. You know, got kidnapped, escaped, and then, uh, you know, went to the airport, first flight, and then I was in Hong Kong. Stop, stop, stop. Did you say you got kidnapped? Yes, I was. Um, I was. I think, I think right now what's happened actually on the media, so there's a recent... There's a recent journalist who's even gotten kidnapped now. I mean, it's, that was the norm then, you know, a lot more kidnapping happening at that particular point. Um, you know, I thought things have died out now, but it seems like it's coming up again. Apparently today there's been a lot more arrests uh, of journalists. Um, and in a sense, so you arrived in Hong Kong in 2013, aged 21, with 25 US dollars in your pocket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that was that's what I came with. You know, that's what I came with. You know, it was a very expensive place, of course. Yeah, but I, I you know, uh, you know, I managed to you know to to make it and survive. You know, for that particular time, and uh, uh, you know, I was homeless on time. But uh, you know, in the end, it's uh, you know, I you know, I spent that time wisely as well. You know, I think I think you don't need to pay to sit in a library in Hong Kong. So I guess that's what I spend my time doing at that particular point, sitting in libraries and reading books, you know, as long as I could not borrow them. Yes, I understand, but I was, you know, at least I could read them and enjoy a free air conditioner. So I think that was, uh, that's how I spend my time at that particular point. You know, I mean, when I turned up 
in Hong Kong in 1993, and I kind of slipped in illegally. Well, I had a I had a visa, but um, of course it was a British colony back then. Um, you know, but it couldn't have been. It, it was totally different circumstances to you. I, I was still fairly broke. I had an A1 art portfolio under my arm, and I used to do a few little jobs around town, photography. I'd sneak across to Macau, uh, come back, have another stamp in my passport. But eventually they caught up with me and they took me aside and they said, listen, you know, we know what you're doing. Um, And, uh, you know, uh, we we, we want you to come into immigration and show us your portfolio to show that you are actually a photographer. So, So it was slightly different to you. You know, I went in, I showed them my portfolio. They thought, okay, nice, pretty pictures. Okay, you can work here. It was as... It was as simple as that, really. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's very interesting, like, that, that, that how things worked at that particular point. Um, you know, I think, I think recently, at least in Hong Kong, you know, they, you know, things sort of happened in a, you know, slightly differently. Uh, but, you know, again, I also came, you know, because I, I didn't need a visa, right, to come to Hong Kong as well. Um, you know, but when I, when I came, you know, I, I, you know, I didn't really do those sort of visa rounds, you know, I... Um, you know, I, I you know I just I just went to the institutions, you know, the government to try to understand if there is anything for me, you know, given my situation at that particular point, um, you know, and then the, you know that's sort of how I ended up having to stay here for seven years now. You know, it's incredible people who do arrive here as refugees uh, because Hong Kong is not a, a signatory to the UNHCR. Yeah, yeah. Refugees in Hong Kong actually aren't allowed to work. And I know what a lot of people say. Why should refugees be allowed to work and take away jobs from locals? But actually, if refugees were allowed to work, then they could at least support themselves and not become such a burden on the state. That is until... Innocent Matanga came along, um, and you kind of changed that, didn't it? Didn't you? Well, yeah. I mean, in in some way, yes. I mean, but you know, there were people, of course, before me who were, who have been working hard to to make some changes and you know gaining traction. You know, but my my approach was you know going through to study, you know, and um, you know, and and you know, getting I ended up getting a, a residence as well. You know, and that would never really happen before, um, but you know. Um, and then I think also recently the government has been uh, offering people opportunities to uh, not really offer the opportunities, but to review and say, okay, you can work. We'll give you permission to work at this particular time. So I think things have been, um, you know, in many ways, you know, despite being still unfavorable, but in many ways things have gotten better. Um, you know, if, even if I hear stories of people who came here in the you know, 2005 and you know, things were really bad then. Um, you know, there was not even any form of assistance from the government as well. Um, and, um, you know, but recently, you know, I mean, with time and time, it seems like uh, more Hong Kong people are caring and knowing about these particular issues. And they are coming in and they are, you know, being able to actually push the government as well to make some changes, you know, be it to, through legislation or be it through just normal discussions and conversations. So in a way, Things have been getting better. I mean, the efforts that the refugees themselves have been putting uh, have been, in many ways, paying off. You know, otherwise, you know, it would have been, you know, it would, it would have been still be tough because, you know, as you highlighted, 
uh, Hong Kong is not a signatory to the 1951 uh, convention, you know, what that implies and how the government also sees it is that they don't see anybody as a refugee at all in the first place. Uh, so there is no such kind of you know, category, refugee asylum seeker in the Hong Kong government perspective. You know, they are only non-reforming claimants um, or illegal, illegal, illegal stayers, uh, overstayers and illegal, in, illegal immigrants. That's how they sort of classify the thing. So in a way, things, you know, there's still that categorization, but you know, there've been some. You know, I think sometimes things get 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 better in in many ways. You know, yeah. yeah, yeah, you know. But it's interesting that what you say about how difficult it was and how refugees aren't actually um, recognized, and yet this is a city that has a long history of refugees. Six hundred thousand people fled China during the Cultural Revolution. Two hundred thousand Vietnamese boat people arrived in the nineteen seventies. I mean, and, it, and it's very complicated that, you know, there's a difference between refugee, asylum seeker, and torture claimant. And, yeah. you know, and, and, and because it's so complicated, people can find themselves caught up in a system for years without any means to earn a living. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, that, those are some of the things that, you know, I, you know, I wish, you know, if anybody comes here, you know, as a refugee, you know, uh, they get to understand that. I mean, you know, from the government perspective, they usually say, you know, they don't want to do like a magnet effect, you know, in a way where you're going to attract more people, um, in a sense, you know, they, you know, you know, so, so it's, uh, you know, it's, you know, the, you know, they, those, you know, it, it makes it harder, of course, it makes it very hard mm. for people, you know, it really makes it harder. So it's something that I personally hope, you know, there could be some changes. Um, you know, especially for the young ones. I think for me, my concern really is the young kids who are born here, uh, who are usually born and then they are considered stateless. I think there is there is there's room there for for for, for policy change. Um, you know, um, than for the adults. I think for the kids, because there's been more kids being born, and if you're born here, you know, your parents are refugees, uh, or one of your parents are refugees. Uh, usually, you won't be able to to be recognized. You know. As, uh, as anybody who has been born here in the first place. You are unrecognized, you're stateless. Uh, so that is uh, a growing issue that I think the government itself may need to start thinking about it. You know, they may ignore it now, but when these kids grow up, which they've already done, they've already been growing up, you know, I think the oldest, some of the oldest who are born here, who are not recognized are almost 20. Um, so, so, you know, if they get 21, 22, I think they're gonna start standing up for themselves. Um, and I think, you know, a smart way for the government is to, you know, uh, start thinking about this because it's coming. So it's one of those things that are inevitable, that this conversation is going to be a main conversation on the refugee scene in Hong Kong. Mm, absolutely. So how did you get into university? How does that work? If you're, is there a, a program for refugees? No, <laughs> no, no, there is no such a thing. I mean, um, you know, I don't think, it, I don't think they will, uh, if, you know, any school or anything, you know, I just had to find my way, you know, I, I you know, there, was, there wasn't any, uh, you know, even the school didn't know what to do. And, uh, uh, but, you know, I, I think I had to read, you know, and uh, learn how things work and also, you know, have a conversation with the, with the universities, you know, with the government, you know, so that they also understand, you know, um, because, you know, it doesn't mean if they are part of the system, they already know everything. Uh, so I think mostly it was largely conversations uh, and, um, you know, there was a point where I just had to put everybody in a, in a conference call and try to solve things. And you know, so the communication line, which wasn't so smooth, can be a lot more smoother in a sense. 
You know, it's a, it's a fantastic story. And, and you chose anthropology. And of course, you now work in finance. How on earth does anthropology and finance coexist? Um, well, I mean, for, you know, anthropology, I mean, for me, you know, I don't see any particular, you know, contradiction in it in the first place. I think it's more, uh, you know, it's all about people. I think everything that people do is really much about people. Anthropology being the study of people or the start of cultures, whatever people are defining this, you know, in a way it gives you a sense of how, you know, the world works and, you know, in financial, uh, uh, finances of gives it a different perspective as well. So in a sense, it's, uh, it's to me, it's still sort of the same, uh, a different way, but still looking at the same things. I think whatever in we happen, you know, usually it's really driven by people, be it ideology, um, you know, it's driven by people. Um, and, um, you know, I think I'm even in, in many ways, I'm an underdog. I'm an underdog who actually is at an advantage uh, because I get to see some of the things uh, which are, aren't usually easy to see in many ways, because it gives them that holistic perspective, you know. So, Innocent, uh, anthropology led to the founding of the Africa Center. Can we chat about the center in a minute? I know it's very dear to your heart, but I want to wind back a bit and talk about your childhood. Where did you grow up? Um, yeah, I mean, starting with my childhood, I mean, I was born, I was, you know, I was born in Zimbabwe, you know, I, I was born in Wange, which is a mining town. Uh, and, um, you know, that's where I spent, I spent some bit of my time, but I think, you know, when my father died when I was quite young, and then we moved to the rural areas in a place called Gokwe, uh, in the Midlands, and, uh, you know, I grew up heading Keto, like many of the boys there, you know, and, uh, you know, I, um, you know, I think that's where, you know, I got to learn a lot more, you know, I think those two places really shaped how I see things, and how, I ended up having to, you know, to talk, to, to, you know, to get to actually, you know, getting on with what I do in the center as well. I think it's largely inspired by that. And by all accounts, your, your mother was the bedrock of your family, of your life. Yes, yes. My mother, my mother really, you know, she played a huge role uh, in many ways to teach me empathy. Um, you know, I, I recall an incident that happened when I was quite young. You know, uh, you know, there is an ethnic group called the, the Tonga people in Zimbabwe. So it's yeah. a ethnic minority. And, um, you know, a lot of people, you know, look, look down on you know, ethnic minorities, as, as, you know, especially that particular group in, in Zimbabwe. And uh, you know, there was one lady who came to our, our, to our home and she was looking for, uh, for a, for a you know, part-time job. And then it was, a very, it was a crisis at that particular point. The country was, you know, it's in 2002 or so when there was, uh, famine and all the, and the different things you could imagine. Um, you know, and then she started, you know, sort of talking in you know, a sort of like a begging tone to my mother. And then I started laughing. Um, I, I recall my mother having to, you know, call me on the side after and, uh, you know, and, you know, pull my ear. And it's like, you know, what you do there was unacceptable. You know, um, that, you know, was the, this, the, the, the lady who had come, you know, the Tonga lady had come with a kid who was about my age and my mother, like, look at that kid, the kid, you know, that could be you and that woman could be me, you know, being, you know, referring to her and just, you know, spinning things and try to see things from the shoes of others. You know, I think for me, that was one turning point in many ways, um, you know, trying to see things differently. Uh, so my mother really, I think she taught me quite a lot, uh, you know, in terms of respecting people and thinking from, 
other people's uh, you know perspective and get into the into their shoes. You know. Do you, uh, you also spent some time in America, didn't you? Which I don't think was a very good experience. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, your time in America and what Black Lives Matter means to you? Um, you know, I, when I finished um, when I finished high school, I mean, I you know, I managed to get a scholarship to go and study in America. Uh, you know, with three of my friends um, and. Um, you know, my experience there, you know, you know, I, you know, it was in many ways a learning experience, a challenging experience, uh, an experience that made me angry, uh, an experience that inspired me as well. Um, you know, but my initial experience was an experience of innocence, really. Uh, you know, I recall, you know, we, I would train uh, at night because I was playing football. Uh, I mean, like real football. I mean, like what they call soccer. Um, so, you know, and then I would train, you know, and then you know, when I'm running on the, you know, on the, you know, you know, across the different towns, you know, you know, I always had police coming after me. You know, I initially I thought the police was there to defend me, to protect me in case I fall off because I was working so hard, you know. But later on, you know, my innocence sort of ran away when I began to understand the society, you know, on how a black man is sort of viewed um, as this dangerous uh you know, dangerous object that is there to sort of like, you know, do anything dangerous in a sense. So for me, um, you know, those experiences, you know, began, of course, to sort of create a certain special form of anger in um, you know, how things are going, you know, the continual disenfranchisement of the black man in America, um, you know, and, um, you know, I started to read up books, you know, I started to read up a lot more on African, uh, African-American literature, uh, you know, people like James Baldwin, you know, I think I sort of try to understand, you know, how and why things are like this. Um, but I'd never seen anything like that in my life. You yeah, know, never, absolutely. Never, yeah. And you, you, I mean, you, you assume it's going to be the land of milk and honey, but. but uh, yeah, that was the impression, right? You know, as kids, you are told that, oh yeah, America, you know, great America. Yeah. You know, and then you get in there, you are like, wow. You know, when I left America, you know, I, I talked to some friends and I've been saying it even ever since I like America has a huge race problem. And if they don't revisit it very well, then that's the fall of America in a sense, if they don't address it, because it's, 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 a, it's a big problem. It's, yeah. you know, I think America and then South Africa, number two in that sense, you know, like those countries have a big, big race issue, you know. And, and what about Hong Kong? I mean, do you find that there's institutionalized racism here in Hong Kong? Because actually in a recent South China Morning Post article, you said, from my experiences here, it's not racism. I think a better word is classism. Hong Kong society favors those with money and status and treats anything that's different with suspicion and fear. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's my experience, right? I mean, I can give, I can give you a very simple example uh, on how, you know, in most cases, some of my African-American friends, for example, here in Hong Kong, uh, you know, when they are viewed by some people in Hong Kong, they are, oh, in the first impression, like, oh, you're African, right? And then they look down on that person. Uh, and then he, when they realize, oh, you're actually an American, then already your status goes up. The assumption is that associated with American money, right? American wealth, you know, and then the, the experience become higher. You know, the same with on my side as well. You know, when when they assume that I was African American, 
you know, the treatment is slightly higher, you know, slightly better in a way. You know, the moment they know that, oh, this guy is actually African, and then all of a sudden that goes very, uh, their treatment goes, you know, less, uh, less in a way. We treated less of, uh, uh, of people in a way. So, so it's, um, you know, I mean, there is an association uh, with certain groups of people with, the, with money, um, and, but when they usually get close, they realize, oh, this person actually has a bit of money and then all of a sudden the treatment changes. You know, that, you know for me, I, you know, people can bring identity politics to Hong Kong and I don't think it applies uh, very well. You know, I think it's a lot more complicated, uh, more nuanced in a different way than it would play out, let's say in Western Europe or in, uh, in South Africa or in the US, you know. So it's, it's, it's so, yeah. So, so uh, going back again to the point of fear and suspicion, right? You know, um, you know, fear, suspicion, and curiosity. That's another, another, another word. So, so, you know, when people see me, you know, usually there's a lot more curiosity. Like, oh my God, look at this guy. You know, and they want to sort of understand, like, why your skin color is like this? Why your hair is like this? You know, what, what about that? You know, but at the same time, there is a bit more fear in it. Like, it's a bit more suspicion in it. But the curiosity, I think, um, is what is special about, uh, about Hong Kong in many ways. Um, you know, the, the, the curiosity that is there, you know, it's not like I've already painted you this, you are that, but it's like, you know what? I know people say this, I know there is this belief about this, but I'm quite curious. Um, so I've seen that. So it's kind of like a mix. And I feel like people maybe need to come up with different terms for it. I think it's slightly different in mainland China, isn't it? I mean, we've seen some fairly horrible stories since the uh, coronavirus, haven't we? Um, I would, um, I think, you know, I think, you know, China is very big, right? You know, like, you know, a billion point something people. Um, and I think, I think different parts of China are different in many ways. Um, you know, but I guess for the case that you are referring to, you know, uh, during the coronavirus, I mean, there was a certain layer again, which was missing, uh, in the discussion. I mean, largely because the, most of the reporters were CNN and BBC. So they made it a, uh, a race, much more of a race issue, uh, than what it actually was, which was really an issue of Im immigration and, uh, visas and, uh, you know, which is, I think, Africans probably would have loved to have that conversation instead of the conversation on, oh, you are black, you're Chinese, so fight. You know, I, I think there was definitely more to it. Uh, and, you know, I was disappointed that the issue of visas and immigration was never addressed. Uh, and then it became a race and uh, identity politics issue. Um, you know, I think in many ways, the conversation was monopolized by the, uh, by the West, um, you know, uh, in a way that it shouldn't have been. I think the conversation have been between Chinese and Africans, uh, and they decide what, and they call it what they think it is. Uh, and as I said, you know, the issue was really a lot about immigration. Um, yeah, so, so there is, you know, again, you know, goes back to the suspicion that comes, you know, with the certain groups of people who are considered ambiguous in many ways. Uh, so for me, again, you know, that also gives me that sense, you know, you know, kind of also from an anthropological background as well, and trying to see how people around here, they are a lot more, again, fearful of something that's ambiguous, you know, something that's not, in many ways, you know, fit certain categories that they are familiar with. So it's, so it's, there was a mix of everything, but the main thing there was the issue of immigration. You know, um, talking about our, our very different backgrounds, um, I, I need to discuss very briefly, I think, because yeah. time is getting on uh, quite a sensitive issue. Uh, my 
great-grandfather was a pioneer. He left Scotland in 1890 with very little money. Mm-hmm. Um, he joined Rhodes's pioneer column. You know, it was quite brave to venture out into what was known as unknown parts on the maps of Africa. And yeah. he became close enough to Rhodes to become a pallbearer at his funeral. Um, so I think I'd be hypocritical if I said I wasn't a little proud of that fact. I won't deny it. But what do you feel about Rhodes Must Fall? You know, that, that's, you know that's, a, that's a very interesting story, of course, to hear in a sense. You know, I think, you know, Rhodes, from the perspective of, uh, of the black Africans, um, you know, I, there is, you know, I don't think that guy had anything of in his interest in trying to say, okay, I've got something for the people in the country. You know, I think me personally, I don't have very good uh, feeling about Rhodes as a whole. Uh, you know, just Rawls, Cecil John Rawls. You know, to me, that's a colonialist, right? So, so I, you know, um, I think, I think, you know, I think going back, now you mentioned the pioneer column. I think these were like mercenaries, right? Um, coming up to, is, is, that, is that, that the one you're referring to, right? No, I, no, they were, they, they came out and opened up the country and obviously, you know, planted the flag in what was then Salisbury. Um, Salisbury, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I don't think I don't think they were mercenaries. Uh, they weren't well soldiers. I don't believe. Um, but I, I, you know, I I can't help feeling that Rhodes is slightly misunderstood. You know, because he wasn't a slaver, and and uh, his relations with Lovan Gula were were quite uh, good actually. Um, you know, and I know uh, I, I know that you and I will have very different. Uh, oh, I mean, of course. That. I mean, I think you already expected, right? I mean, I think there was a lot of deception involved, right? Even in in the whole signing of the. I agree uh, with you there. Yeah. I'm not so, going to. So, so I don't think that's a good relationship if somebody's deceiving the other, you know, uh, in mm. terms of, uh, you know, yes, maybe you, you, you know, you, you know, maybe there was a point Lobengula thought Rosie was a friend. Uh, and so were the missionaries like, uh, you know, Ro- Robert, John Moffat, you know, the, you might have thought they were friends, but if they were deceiving, they deceived him in signing the, you know, uh, the 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 contract that is passing over the land, which was actually challenged by the by Queen Elizabeth, uh, no Queen whether Queen whoever Queen was there Queen Victoria. Victoria yeah Queen Queen Victoria in a way which she also said this was terrible cannot have been like that you know so in many ways I think there is um, you know you know deception one you know um, and then the creation of the reserve areas in a way I mean my own ancestors were actually sent into the Tetefly area. Uh, where most of the people died and their livestock died because they were being pushed away from the places where the minerals were, uh, where Rose, uh, you know, wanted to mine and get the resources. And they were pushed into these so-called reserve areas, which were like full of tetraflies. Um, so it's, it's a very, you know, um, it, you know, if you, it becomes a very, in, you know, different view, of course, as a whole. You know? Absolutely. But do you believe that tearing down statues is actually going to help um, you know, really, uh, monument destruction surely will just create a wider divide. And putting them into museums makes much more sense. You know, you can't really erase history, can you? I, 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 I agree with the last part, that putting them into museums would make sense. Uh, I, think, I think the problem with the statues on the street is that they lack context. Um, you know, statues for, for us, historically, for everybody, really, has been the people we glorify, right? Uh, it's the people we glorify. But if we, if we put the statue uh, of somebody like Rose, you know, it implies that we glorify the person, 
but but the sentiments have changed. He might have been glorified at that particular point by a certain group of people, but sort of things have changed. So I think putting them in a museum, yes, but I, should they be standing on the, you know, at probably the University of Cape Town or, you know, I think I was at Rod's grave, by the way, when I went to Zimbabwe in Matopos, um, you know, so it becomes one of the questions like, should they be outside or should we find a museum where we can contextualize that, okay, maybe Rhodes in his time, this was the way that the things were being done. Uh, and, uh, and it becomes more educational in a sense in a museum than on the street corner, in my view. Yes, I quite agree with you. And I think it's better than lopping off the head of the sculpture as well. Um, Innocent, what is your ultimate mission as far as, and, and I think these are your words, rebranding black, especially how black men are portrayed in the media and through the school system? Um, yeah, I think it's, uh, you, know, uh, you know, as I say, you know, like rebranding blackness, you know, historically black has been seen negatively, you know, uh, and this was, uh, the branding of blackness as something negative was uh, part of the colonial project, uh, which looked to justify uh, the colon, you know, the, the whole colonial project, like, okay, the black man is inferior, they need civilization, uh, the black man um you know is, is the savage you know they've got these instincts that needs to be uh in a way you know be removed in some way through christianity um so so it's a, so there was that image that was created uh of black people um you know which has stayed it's a brand that was made um and largely to to justify slavery to justify colonialism of uh, dangerous black people who needs to be only a whip can keep them in check and all that different things. So those things have gone. That was, those are deliberate efforts. So I think now, at least the African themselves, it's their turn now to, to rebrand, you know, to change that brand and to show that, uh, you know, see black people just for who they are, people like any other person, right? You know, uh, not as, uh, as these dangerous people, these people were needing in handouts and all different things. So in a way, I think, um, for, for me, the whole, you know, mission or rebranding blackness lies in that. And why now, um, you know, I see a change, a shift in global order, uh, you know, where in the past Western Europe and the U.S. were more significant. It's still kind of significant now, but I don't think it's going to be the case in the next 50 years. Uh, even 20 years, you know, uh, I feel like this particular region, which is, you know, this part of the Asia, you know, I think it's become more significant in a way. So I think it's important that we take advantage of this time um, and to take control of our stories and be able to tell them the way we want to be to them to be told and be able to actually you know, make sure people in this particular part of the region, they understand us for who we are, not for the brand that was created by the Europeans when they were colonizing um, Africa in a way. So it's, um, you know, I think one of the, my favorite quotation, uh, you know, which Chinua Achebe usually echoed, you know, Chinua Achebe, the novelist, uh, he would say something like, until, until the lions knows how to, uh, until the, the lion knows how to write, they have their own historians, until the lions have their own historians, the history of the hunt, you always praise the hunter. You know, again, I mean, it goes back even to the question of, uh, you know, Cecil John Rose, um, you know, uh, Charles Rudd, you know, all these people like, you know, they told their stories of the version of the story. So, but if it's going to be, you know, another perspective now, which is the one, the lion that has been hunted in many ways. So it becomes a different uh, narrative in many ways. And uh, honestly, I think there is still a lot of work to be done in terms of rebranding blackness. 
Um, but I think there is more potential in Asia than in Western Europe because it, uh, Western Europe and the US is so embedded. Uh, the racism and white supremacy there is so embedded that it's so hard to challenge. Mm. Yeah, well, let's get to Asia in a second because I do want to talk about that. But you also, um, you very much dislike the way black Africa is portrayed by NGOs. Um, yeah. you know, playing the whole poverty card. Yeah. Um, can, you know, before you expand on that, uh, the former Time Magazine correspondent for Africa, Alex mm -hmm. Perry, wrote a book called The Rift. Mm -hmm. um, and he said in it, a new Africa is arising, one that is lifting hundreds of millions out of poverty. And this yeah. new economic and political titan disdains aid, rejects Western preeminence, and demands sovereign control over its own affairs. Yeah, uh, you know, do you agree with all of that? I do. I mean, there's a, I don't think it's in Africa only. I think there's a very exciting consciousness that is rising out of the so-called global south, uh, the one that has been historically oppressed, the one that has already been taught to sort of worship whiteness. But now I think there's an interesting consciousness that is coming up. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, even with, among the Africans here in diaspora in Africa, um, things like NGOs, you know, the pain, the picture that they're painting and all the, those playing on all those pity things, it's being challenged. Um, you know, I think I agree. And I think that's something that those people who are, you know, who are sleeping and they're not aware, well, they're going to have to see how different things are going to have to get. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's more like a story of, you know, certain places which nobody would have listened to in the past, like even China, for example, and now people actually listen, you know. So I think there's an interesting consciousness, you know, and consciousness that people are trying, to, they are living their lives without having the, the, the white gaze. You know, in the past, we were sort of forced to live with that, with that white gaze. Like, you know what, anyway, my life, I would live it the way I would have wanted. Now I'm proud of my own heritage. Because if anything, when Christianity came and the Europeans came, they taught us to hate ourselves. They taught us to hate our culture. They taught us our art was evil. And then they take the art and they put it in, 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 in Europe, you know, in their museums. So it was, it was uh, you know, like that hating of yourself, the hating of your culture, like as demonic as evil, you know. So, and then now there's that consciousness that's rising up, you know, um, you know, which I feel like people like Chinu Achebe were really some of the first people to start that. You know, it didn't get as much traction then, but I feel like right now, it just feels like it's just right the, the right time that these things are happening. Time is galloping on. So before we go, uh, tell us your thoughts on China in Africa, um, the whole Belt and Road Initiative. And in 2016, and a lot ha has happened since 2016, mm -hmm. but in 2016, in an interview, you, you actually wrote in the yeah. Hong Kong Free Press, you mm -hmm. said, the Chinese state believes in no strings attached relations they would not care that much about terrorism or any criminal activities that this borderless policy might bring about. Thus, unlike many investors who are not comfortable investing in an unstable region, China will stay despite any turmoil. Yeah, I mean, China and Africa, they call each other an all-weather friends, you know. Um... You know, I, I, and you know, I think so far that has been true. Um, in a sense, you know, I'm aware that there's been a lot more criticism in the relationship. You know, things like, oh, they are not hiring locals; they are bringing foreigners. They are bringing Chinese to work in Africa, but that's not true, actually. 
you know, I think 80 something percent to 90 something of the managers, not even the, the people at the bottom are usually Africans. Um, so I, I mean, you know, for me, the relation between China and Africa excites me in many ways. Uh, it's a new possibility of for a, a relationship that two um, developing places, you know, uh, coming together and building their own, you know, economies uh, in a way that I think is mutually beneficial. You know, there is, uh, there is nobody as, at least openly assuming a supremacy over the other, you know. So I find that um, a lot more interesting. And of, of course, you know, there are, of course, problems and stuff. So I think there is, uh, you know, you know, I think the past few years, if anything, has proved that so far, there is a lot more potential for anything. So I think uh, definitely, you know, I'm excited to see what comes out of it. Uh, and I want to be a part of it as well, because it's not one of those things where like, oh, you know, I don't want to be a part, you know, it's, I think this thing does want to happen. I want to be a part of it. That's why I, I think I'm here in Hong Kong. You know, why can't we have proper conversations on China or Africa-China relations? Um, you know, so we actually put a series actually starting, I think, around September. So just to talk about Africa-China relations, uh, you know, I think people need to understand. We also need to understand so that we can be able to make very good relationships uh, that will work for, for, for both sides. Yeah, I mean, and, and Innocent, do you still believe in a, in a united Africa and an integrated currency? Would that actually work uh, in this day and age? I mean, uh, and I know you mentioned that a while ago. I think, um, you know, by united, and I think of it in more economic terms, not really political, like let's say have one president. I think in a more economic, like the European Union. Like right? the EU. Yeah. yeah, like the European Union. So I think, I think for me, that's how I see it. Or, you know, ASEAN or something like that. You know, so, so I think that's how I, I see it in a sense. Like, okay, why, why are we having uh, these tariffs and these things are between African countries? I think that is, doesn't make any sense to me. You know, I think we need to open that and make it, cheaper, you know, to, to, to import and put within Africa. Because if we don't do that, then we start exporting outside and putting from our way outside of Africa. So I think definitely that those economic um, ties, I, I totally believe in them. I think that's, to be honest, I think that's probably the only way to, to, for, for Africa to go forward. And visa-free access, uh, free flow of, uh, of business people going uh, throughout yes, the, yes. the countries I mean, they, in Africa. They do it here. I mean, they do it in different ways, right? Why can't we, we, we do that? You know, I think it's a, it's a, you know, one thing you have to remember is that when the, uh, the Europeans were there, they beauty Africa in a way that going from Harare to Nigeria or Harare to, to Lagos was harder than going from Harare to, to London. You know, because it, Africa, the way it was built by the, by the Europeans was literally just to extract things. That's why it's, people are moving away from Africa to Europe, not because it's better, you know, but it's largely because that's the way Africa was built. Um, so we are, we've been recently been destroying this, uh, this way of, of building Africa. We've been building roads between cities. We've been making more flights with, uh, you know, between uh, uh, African cities, and that is connecting Africa more. You know, I understand, you know, why this taking so long, delaying this, uh, removing of borders, because of this structure that was set before. But things are changing now. Um, and I feel like Africa is getting more connected, um, and which is ideal of the Africa we want as well. Um, Innocent, we're virtually out of time, but please yes. tell us about the Africa Center in Hong Kong. What yeah. activities go on there? Who's welcome? Everybody's welcome. It's a platform that's uniquely African. You know, you, know, you don't usually find this platform around here, but we do, uh, you know, we do African literature book clubs, we do cooking workshops, we do... Uh, 
you're there you're there at the moment i gather because i yeah, can hear a lot of am, stuff right? going on in the background yeah that's where i am right now um in you know due to virus now we haven't been doing much of the activities but the team is usually here uh you know working on uh, on new initiatives um yeah so far i mean it's been exciting as a platform that is bringing more people together um you know many people who come here they usually come and this is the most diverse place i've been to in the world uh, so, I mean, I like that, you know, it's not just diversity in terms of colors, but it's also diversity in terms of thoughts and views and, you know, sexuality, gender, you know, multiple ways. You know, I think that's really, in many ways, uh, beautiful in sense. You know, it makes me smile, you know, that we are championing that in Hong Kong, uh, you know, in everybody else. I know a lot of people are doing that as well, you know, uh, so it's, it's, uh, it, it's great in many ways. Well, I mean, I wish you all the best for the Africa Center, and I really hope to see you down there sometime for a cookery class or a fiery discussion. Uh, but, <laughs> but actually, we're out of time. Innocent Matanga, thank, thank you, you so much, much for joining me on Conversations with Pete Wood. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for the it's been It's been an absolute pleasure listening to a Zimbabwean accent as well. <laughs> Oh, that's great. That's great. That's cool. That's cool. <laughs> okay. Take care. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, sure. Sure. Bye. 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 That was fellow Zimbabwean, or should I say, fellow Hong Konger, Innocent Matanga. Now, if you want to find out more about the Africa Center in Hong Kong, you can go to the website, africacenterhk.com. That's Africa, C-E-N-T-E-R-H-K dot Well, that's about it. Thank you so much for listening to me. And remember, you can tune into my new episodes of Mud Between Your Toes via iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Blueberry, and Pocket Casts. Don't forget, you can always buy a copy of my book on both Amazon and Kindle. And I also welcome comments by email on mudbetweenyourtoes at gmail.com. Goodbye.